one who is unchangeable. And so let's read together this morning in Revelation chapter 1 and we'll be reading from verse 9 through to verse 20. Revelation 1 verse 9 to 20. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Most of you will know who Queen Elizabeth is, right? She's very much loved by people, mostly. Why? Because she mixes with people. She's not aloof. When she's in a vehicle and they allow her to, she'll get out and shake hands with people. She'll speak to little girls on the street who give her flowers. She's loved by the people because she's among them. I love this description of Jesus Christ. Why? Because He is among His people. And that's why we can love Him. He hasn't created us and left us. He is among His church. And that's what we're going to look at in this passage today. Secondly, as in the introduction this morning, We must note this passage because it's the model passage of how to take apart Revelation. It's kind of the first one that we have to get to grips with. And it tells us how to approach Revelation. You'll note some of the phrases that we're going to look at today come directly from the Old Testament and from some of the other visions that Daniel and Isaiah and others saw. And um, I've noted some of the references for you there in brackets on that first page of the heading. Um, 
we, I'll refer to them later again in the notes, so don't worry about it. But I just wanted to show there, there are quite a few references in the Old Testament that are going to come up. And they're actually from Scripture. They might not be word for word from Daniel, but they refer to that passage. And you'll see the visions coming out and the phrases coming out of them. The second thing we need to note is the word like. If you go and look at that passage and that description of Jesus Christ, you'll notice the word like is used a lot. He was like this. His face was like that. His feet were like this. It's because words could only try and describe what John was seeing. He was seeing so much more, he could only think of an analogy of something which he knew, the closest thing resembling to. And under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, those are the words that were given to him. And so we need to remember that. What John saw was much, much, much more than the words we are, we've got here. He was trying to put into words this mag- magnificent vision that God gave him. And we'll come across that with some of the other descriptions in Revelation as well. And then the third thing we need to note is that we need to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. That's always the golden rule when we come to God's Word. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. Don't jump to your own conclusions. And the problem with interpreting Revelation is that many people have come to this book and they'll see a phrase, and I'll come to one a bit later this morning, and they've built a whole theology on one little phrase. But nowhere else in Scripture does it say anything about that. So it's wrong. Scripture must interpret Scripture. We have an example of that where we, and I'll come to it again later, where we find verse 20 in this text, where he explains what the seven stars in his hands mean, where he explains what the lampstands are. Scripture is telling us what it means. And when we come in the book of Revelation to other passages, the beast and other things like that, Scripture will tell us what they are. We need to find that clue. And so those are the basic principles that we need to note in this very first description. So that's his introduction. But let's come to this vision itself that the Apostle John saw on that island of Patmos. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Christ Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a voice like a trumpet saying, and then he goes into the description. So we have the Apostle John, who is the author under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who receives this vision and is told to write it down in pen, and so that it can be given to others. Note who the Apostle John is. Why is he on the Isle of Patmos? He says it's on account of the tribulation and the kingdom. He was there because he had spoken about Jesus Christ and he had not backed down. Those days when the Apostle John was alive, believers were starting to be put under pressure by the Roman authorities specifically to recant, to take back their statements of faith in Jesus and this new Christian belief that was around. All they had to do was just say, I do not believe in this any longer and then they were freed. Otherwise they were cast to the lions. Otherwise, they were torn to pieces in the circus. Otherwise, they were burnt at the stake. All they had to do was say, I don't believe this anymore. But John was one who remained faithful. And that's why they sent him to this island of Patmos. 
He was faithful not just to Jesus Christ, but to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Because he knew there were other believers who were part of this kingdom. He was the Apostle John. He was the one who had been given authority by God to speak these words, but also to be an example to those who would follow. So how could he back down? There was the kingdom of Jesus Christ also to think of. And so through patient endurance in Jesus, he allows himself to be sent away as punishment. And those are themes which we're going to find coming out continually in the book of Revelation. Tribulation, the kingdom, patient endurance in Jesus. Those three themes are the main themes which you'll find time and again as we come through the book. Tribulation, the kingdom, and patient endurance in Jesus Christ. And so he says, I'm your brother and your partner in the gospel. He's not calling himself the apostle here anymore. I am one of you. I too am suffering like you, many of you. And when you get this letter, which is going to be circulated among the seven churches and others from there, take note, I am one of you. I am no super saint. I am not set apart because I am an apostle. I too am suffering like you. Take courage, my brothers, my sisters in Jesus. I am here on this island of Patmos. Patmos was a punishment colony. It wasn't a holiday camp. If you look at the brochures today, you can visit the Isle of Patmos and you see beautiful beaches, a bit of rocks on a few sides, but golden sands, beautiful white buildings, blue seas. It was nothing like that. It was a punishment colony. People endured harsh conditions. They had to work from sunlight to after sunset under the watchful eye of Roman soldiers with whips. And they were only too willing to use those whips because they were highly bored on these colonies. And anything which would bring them entertainment, they would use. And so they would torture the prisoners. They would whip them for the pleasure of the soldiers. It was hard to be there. And not just that. There was insufficient food. The Roman soldiers were known to be underfed. And so any food they could get, they would eat. And so even the prisoners' food, they would eat. And so you only got the scraps that they would throw to you as a prisoner just to keep you alive so that there weren't too many questions asked about why you died. But believe me, not many questions were asked when prisoners died. It was kind of expected. And so with insufficient food, with no clothing except the clothing that you were put on that island with, and so many of the prisoners after years were just in tatters and rags. Imagine the filth. And not just that, no beds were given to them. You had to find a place to sleep. And so in caves, these prisoners used to sleep on the hard ground and they'd try and make things as comfortable as they could on a, an island which is on the sea, which not much plant growth grows on anymore. And there was this 90-year-old man trying to survive. Think of it. The, the, the Apostle John for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And why was he there? His uncompromising loyalty to Jesus Christ. I'll come back to that at the end. He was not willing to say, I do not follow Jesus Christ. And so as he is on the Lord's Day, verses 10 to 16, he gives us a description. 
He says, I was in the Spirit, or in the literal translation, I was in Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Here he is in spirit on the Lord's day. Now, the Christian day of corporate worship in the New Testament times was the first day of the week and they called it the Lord's day. And they started celebrating the Lord's Day on that day to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the early church took this up very early on. And so here we find the Apostle John on the Lord's Day worshipping the Lord. Now, are we not to worship the Lord on all the rest of the days? Well, of course we are. Scripture teaches that over and over. Every day is to be a day of worship unto the Lord. But there is one day that the Lord has given us that we are to still worship Him, but we have to get together corporately and worship Him as the body of Christ together. It's one day in seven, the day of the Lord, the Lord's day rather, and that is the day that we get together and worship Him. But John didn't necessarily have others to worship with, and so there he is worshipping the Lord, possibly on his own. And he says, I was in spirit on the Lord's day. The specific Sunday when he was worshipping the Lord as he did many other Sundays as he worshipped the Lord per usual God gave him a very unusual experience he says I was in spirit on the Lord's day there seems to be nothing unusual about that you see some people have built a theology on that they've said this is, this is a special experience of the Lord we have to be in spirit and we have a deeper spiritual experience with the Lord. Well, nowhere else in Scripture does it say that. He was in spirit on the Lord's day. It's like those moments when you are so taken up in worship of the Lord that everything else dissolves in the background. You lose all sense of time. Our greatest enemy to experiencing times of worship like that is what? Busyness. We don't have time to worship the Lord as we should anymore. Because I've got to get to the next thing. And the five minutes in the morning or in the evening when I'm half asleep is not going to do it. We need to spend time worshipping the Lord. And we too will experience being in spirit. Because the spirit comes and he gives us a special sense of God with us. But we need to be spending the time with him. We can't be looking at our watches. John didn't have to on the Isle of Patmos. He was in spirit. And he was so absorbed in worshipping the Lord. It was just like any other Sunday and then it changed. The Lord gave him a very unusual experience. The Lord gave him this heavenly vision. Now, this was not unique either. Others had experienced this these heavenly visions. Peter experienced a vision the Lord gave him to get him to lose his hatred of the Gentiles. He saw this cloak coming down out of heaven and on it were animals and I can't go into it now. It was a vision teaching him something which he would then later teach others and also it was teaching him about his own attitudes. But there was Ezekiel who saw a vision that God gave him. There was Daniel, there was Isaiah and others. 
that are described. And we'll come to them as we study Revelation. And so John has this vision of the glorious God that God gives him. And it was an amazing experience. Much like the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 where he said, I was taken to the third heaven and we don't know what else happened there. He only gives us little clues of what God showed him. But God must have shown him amazing things because when he came back from that time with the Lord, the Apostle Paul was a very much a changed man, wasn't he? He got out and instead of persecuting believers, he was the one that went and helped the church. He was the one who was persecuted because of his bold stand for Christ. His vision of the glorious Christ changed him. And so it should change us too. But here the Apostle John has this beautiful vision that God gives him about the risen Christ. Verse 10 he says, I heard a great sound like a loud voice, like a trumpet. And then the words, write down what you see. He was told to write down in human words and then send to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, and those are the churches there in that central region of what was then known as Asia. And I've got a map there for you to show you kind of where it was. And in the wisdom of God, in the order that it's given to us, it's kind of in the way that someone would travel around in a circle, taking this letter from one church to the other, and then to other churches. But he was to take this, this description of Jesus Christ glorified to these seven churches, who would then dwell on those words and then live out what God had given to them through those instructions. But God gives them this experience so that the churches would get taught through it. And so, what does he see? Let's look at what he sees. He sees, the first thing he sees is the seven golden lampstands and one like a son of man standing in their midst. Now, not all of us always know what these things look like, so I brought a little model. The real lampstands in the temple were massive. Because the experience when you came into the temple would be one of light. They didn't have electric lights there and so they had to put in candles in the temples and those were big buildings and so they had to have big lights. But there was more than that, you see. Coming to God was to be an experience of light and so you walked into the temple and there were these massive lampstands and there was light all over and they were representing God among His people already at that early stage. And so he sees this vision of seven golden lampstands and one like a son of man standing in their midst. This was a reference directly to Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 1 and 2, and I'd like you to turn there with me please, because we need to start taking note of some of these visions that he's referring to. These are actual visions that people saw. And so Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 1 and 2, this is what it says. Prophet Ezekiel, in the sixth year, in the sixth month, Hundreds of years before the one we are talking about. On the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house, with the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. Exactly what happened to John. Then I looked and behold, a form that had the appearance of a man. Again, it was like a man. Below what appeared to be his waist was fire, and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming 
metal. You see that vision also of the Almighty. And so Ezekiel saw him. And what were these seven golden lampstands referring to? Well, according to verse 20, which is our interpretation this morning of this passage, it is the seven churches. The seven churches who would be the light bearers and the witness bearers of Jesus Christ. And in the midst of the seven churches is this glorified one, Christ, standing among His church. Very much just as the God of the Old Testament, the God who was right here with, with and in Jesus Christ, the same God who came down to His people in the cloud of glory, in the tabernacle, on the mercy seat between the two cherubims. God met His people there in the Old Testament. Well, here's the Son of Man among His people too. Standing among the lampstands. God with man. Is that amazing? The description there says, Christ appears to John as a Son of Man. A Son of Man. Small letters. One in the human form. But also, the Son of Man. The one God who became man. God incarnate, the Son of Man. He is the one who appears there among the churches. Isaiah saw a similar vision. If you turn to Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1, you don't need to. I'll just bring you that verse. Isaiah 6 verse 1, it says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and exalted, and the train of His robe filled the temple. What's it speaking about there? His holiness and His purity filled the temple. Now that's a remarkable image, but it's even more remarkable when John, in John chapter 12 verse 41, speaks about that image and he says it refers to not God the Father, but Jesus, glorified. You see, the pictures are kind of sinking in to look the same. God the Father seated on His throne and the Son of Man glorified, the descriptions of these two are very much the same. And that's no coincidence. Why? Because the Trinity are one. And so when we see pictures of God, it is of the Trinity. And sometimes we see the Son, sometimes we see the Father, but they are one and the same. And three. And I can't go deeper into that this morning. And so here too we see Christ as He appears among His church as the judge and the ruler over the churches. But please note this morning, it's not a future vision of Jesus Christ, but it's a present vision of Jesus Christ. As John saw that vision of Christ among the churches, it was a present day picture of Christ looking after and keeping God over His church. Why was it that? Because the churches needed to hear this. Why? They were in the midst of tribulation. They were undergoing persecution. They needed to know that Jesus Christ is among us. He knows what we are going through. He's not left us here to carry on on our own. He is here with us. They needed this encouragement. And that's why we see Jesus standing among His church, encouraging His church. So what did this vision look like? What did this description entail? Now, it's really, really important, and we'll come across this again in Revelation, and I've said this many times before, 
Don't get so caught up in the details now that you don't see the big picture. You need to stand back from this next description of Jesus Christ in your mind and see the big picture of Him. Alright? What did He look like? Well, His robe reached down to cover His feet. What did this long robe signify? It was speaking about His royalty. It was speaking about His role as high priest. It was speaking about His purity. The golden sash, referred to in Daniel chapter 10 verse 5 as well, that was the golden waistband of the high priest, studded with gold and studded with beautiful stones, precious stones. What did that speak about? Christ in His role as high priest. He was set apart for that role. He is the only high priest for us now. His white hair, also described in Daniel chapter 7 verse 9. And very interestingly in that description, it's speaking about God the Father. His hair which is white as snow. The Ancient of Days was described there. But here it's describing Jesus Christ. His purity, His wisdom and holy truthfulness which is to be found in Him. His eyes of fire. Daniel chapter 10 verse 6 speaks about this as well. Fire always seems to appear when the Lord appears. Whenever we see any descriptions of the Lord, it is with fire. And here His eyes are like fire. He sees the secrets of the human heart. Revelation 2 verse 18 describes that. And also Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 to 13 describes the God who sees all with eyes of fire. His feet made of bronze, burnished bronze or burnt bronze, always associated with judgment and war. But in this case, he's standing among his churches. So what is that about? He brings his discipline. He doesn't make war on his church. He brings discipline into his church because of his love for us. And so it speaks about the Lord's remedial discipline on erring believers. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 5 to 10 says this, He disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. Isn't that the picture that's described there? A holy God standing among His church. How can He endure unholiness? And then His voice says, John, sounding like the sound of rushing waters. He would have heard the sound of waves crashing onto the rocky shores of Patmos every day. And they are massive waves that come through there and crash onto those boulders. And to him, the only sound he could associate was this, this overwhelming sound, which sounded like a trumpet, but then it sounded like the rushing waters. Overwhelming authority. And you know, it's the same voice that you and I will hear on the day of the Lord when He commands you and I to come up out of the grave. That voice will be unmistakable. It will be an overwhelming voice. The sound of rushing waters will come on us and we will be raised up to see our glorious Christ too. John chapter 5 verse 28. And then He said, In His right hand were the seven stars. His right hand, what does that mean? And it always means this in um, revelation. It's the hand of executive power. The one who controls, the one who protects, the one who brings judgment, the one who brings the action. The right hand. 
And what is the right hand holding? It's holding the seven stars in his hand. What are the seven stars? The interpretation, verse 20, are what? The messengers or the angels of the churches. Now, please take note here. This is another place where people have all kinds of funny interpretations. See, the Greek word here for messenger is also the same Greek word that's used for angel. What were the angels? The messengers of God. And on earth, who are the messengers in the church? Those who bring God's word to the people. So what's it talking about there? The spiritual leaders, the pastors, the ministers of his word. And there he is standing, holding the leadership of his church in his hand, and I'll come to that again now, as he stands among his churches. Who's in control? Jesus Christ. Who's in control of the leaders of his church? Jesus Christ. He holds them in his right hand. He has absolute authority over those leaders. They are his ambassadors. They are his messengers. He protects them. They are safe when they obey him and are faithful in his service. The church is the Lord's. The messengers are the Lord's too. They don't own the church. I think that message needs to go out into the world again. Because if you look on TV and if you look at some of the big churches around, some of those messengers think they own the church. Christ says, I stand among my church. I hold my messengers in my hand. They are mine. The church is mine. And then what do we see in this continued uh, vision that John sees? We see the sword coming out of his mouth. Christ's powerful word with which he protects his church. From what? From those who would come from inside the church and who would create disunity in his church. The ones who would tear his church asunder, he protects through his word. And that's why we need to pay heed to his word. He protects his church through his word. That's why it's so important to us. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12. And then lastly, John describes that this one who stood among his church had a face shining like the sun. He was brilliantly, majestically Jesus Christ. Imagine poor John trying to write all this down as fast as he could. The Holy Spirit helped him. But imagine trying to put into words everything that he saw there. You're so limited by words. And yet the Holy Spirit helped him to put these words down so that he could take it to Christ's church. And what was John's response, verse 17 to 19? Praise the Lord, hallelujah, let's have a Bible study. He didn't do anything of the kind. Why? Because he was faced with the majestic Jesus Christ. What was his response? The only response that is possible when we are faced by God himself. He fell flat on his face as though dead. You know, too many people today hear from the Lord, see the Lord, and they just carry on living as they are. I have to severely question that. Because time and time again, when you come in Scripture, and when you see people that are faced by God, what do they do? They don't face God standing upright. They are flat on their faces before God. Daniel saw the Lord. What happened to him? I was as though I was dead. Ezekiel saw the Lord. Where did he see the Lord? flat on his face. Isaiah saw the Lord. Saul of Tarsus saw the Lord on the road to Damascus. He was flat on his face. 
when we come face to face with God, we will only be in one position, and that is worshipping Him, flat on our faces. One day when we see Him in heaven, we will be flat on our faces. He will rise us up. He will say, stand, look at your God. But our initial response will be to worship Him flat on our faces. The Lord meets him in his need. He raises him up. He says, do not be afraid, John. You see, people usually have associated seeing the Lord with, I'm going to die. I saw the Lord, I'm going to die. The Lord says, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Where, would, where did we meet with this phrase? Last week. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the first and the last. Now he adds something to it. I am the living one. Do you see me, John? I'm glorified in front of you. I am the living one. I once was dead, but now I'm alive forevermore. Who is this speaking? Was God dead? No, but Jesus, the incarnate one, died. So this is Jesus Christ identifying himself to the apostle. I was dead, but I am now the conqueror. I am alive Forevermore, I hold the key to death and to Hades. And that's what I was praying about earlier today. Jesus is the one who decides when we die. And He is the one who decides when we are raised up again. He holds the key to death and Hades. Not Satan. Satan will be subject to death. Eternal death in hell. One day when he gets cast there forever by the Lord on the day of judgment, he will also experience the living death. Jesus Christ is the one who is the key holder to life itself. He's the one. And so he says to John, write these things so that the things that are and the things that will be will go out into the world that my church may be Encouraged, and they know that Christ lives. And that's the vision. So what do we do with that? I want to put four bits of application to you this morning. The first one is this one. By John's example. I want to ask you a question this morning, very directly, and you know me now. Will you stand for Jesus Christ? John was willing to be a prisoner on a prison colony at 90 because of his faith, because of his stand for Jesus Christ. Are you willing in 2017, which is so much easier, to stand up and stand out from the crowd for Jesus Christ? You see, there's too many camouflaged Christians around today. We just blend in with the world. But you know, John speaks about two sides to the Christian experience here this morning. He says there is the kingdom and there is suffering. Jesus spoke about that many times. Jesus said, John chapter fifteen eighteen, If you love me, you will be hated by the world. So how come we're not hated? It's either because we're merging or we've got the wrong message. Jesus says... If you call yourself by my name, then stand and be accounted under my name. And this calls for patient endurance, which is again back to the theme of revelation. We need to continue in our faith. Now, not all of us are going through persecution. 
Praise the Lord. But there may come a time when we will. And when it does, we are called to patient endurance. However, there may be some of you who are experiencing some kind of persecution, whether it's from family members who think you're the biggest geek out there. Weird. Patient endurance for the sake of Jesus Christ. Uncompromising loyalty to Jesus. You see, the greatest enemy of the Christian church today is compromise with the world. That is why we don't stand out. John was willing to stand up and be counted for his faith. He refused to water down the gospel message that he brought out, as many churches do today, unfortunately. He refused to make anything except a bold and a clear stand for what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Are you willing to be the same? In your place of employment, do people know that you are a follower of Jesus Christ? Do they know that clearly? Secondly, I want to ask you this morning. See comfort and security in this passage. The one who holds the key of life is the one who himself conquered death. And he is standing amongst his church and he holds in his hand Wanganui East Baptist Church too. Look around us. We are the ones loved by Jesus Christ. He stands among us as his church. But, if our light no longer goes out from this church, he will no longer stand among us. And we'll come to those warnings in the next few sermons when he speaks to the churches. He stands among his church. He will protect us. But, we need to be taking out the light. We need to be lampstands for him. But take comfort. He stands among us. His grace and His peace are available to you and I. And we are to reflect His grace and His peace to the world as we go out from this place every single Sunday. It is the grace and the peace of Jesus Christ which we take with us into the world. It's not us. It's His peace. His grace. Thirdly, I want to ask you this morning to have a reverence for God. What happens? John is so overwhelmed by this vision that he sees of Jesus Christ that he falls flat on his face. You see, the vision of Jesus Christ as God should frighten you and I too in a good way. It should give us a reverence for Jesus Christ. It should give us awe and wonder for who He is. He is majestic. He is all-powerful. And we tend to forget that quite quickly. He's not like one of us. He's not like us. He's God. You see, we've kind of tamed the idea of God down to a theological thought that I fully understand. That's God. But there's no reverence. We kind of picture Him in our minds like a likeable old man. Yes, He's got white hair, but He's also got a perpetual smile and He sits on this cloud. A tame God. He's no tame God. His almighty God. And this vision of God made John fall down as dead. And yet, it's also a great comfort to know that this living one does not wish him to stay afraid. Christ is also our friend. He's also the one who reaches to us in our distress and gives us life. Yes, he's majestic, but he's the all-loving God at the same time. 
He's powerful, but He's also our pure friend. I love C.S. Lewis's writings and many of you may have seen the Narnia series on TV, but if you've read the books, even better. In one of the descriptions on the Christ-like figure of Aslan the lion in one of his books, this is a description given to him. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Did you get that? God isn't safe, but he's good. He is the king, I tell you. He's God. And yet he loves us with this unfathomable and this unbreakable love. He's God the king and he's good. He says to us too today, whatever may happen to you in this life, I am who I am, God, and I have the victory and I love you. So take courage. And then lastly this morning, to any of you who still do not know Jesus Christ, and as I look across you here, I can't read your hearts, and I tell that to you every Sunday nearly. Only God can. But Jesus calls to you this morning as well. You see, He's the one who holds the keys to death and Hades. He's the only one who ever will hold those keys. Satan never held them at all. God was always in control. And Jesus calls you to experience His love this morning. He calls you to also experience His grace and His peace because they are available to you if you would only come and acknowledge Him as this great and majestic Lord who He is. Would you bow the knee to Jesus Christ? Would you allow Him to be Lord over your life? To take control over your life? To be the one who is in the driving seat of your vehicle of life? Will you allow Him to give you new life, to take your life which ends in death from you and to give you eternal life, to rebirth you into His kingdom of light? So instead of judgment and everlasting dying, you will experience His reward of everlasting living. That's where our friend Lindsay is today. It's because of this great and majestic God. He is experiencing everlasting living because of our great God. Praise be to Jesus Christ, the great and the majestic one. Let's pray. Lord, even in this time this morning is we contemplate these words in our Bibles which are words describing the indescribable the glorified Christ and yet they've all we've got to go for for now those words describing you and thank you for that picture of you in your glorious realm standing among your church with your leaders in your hand looking after your precious bride. Lord, thank you for that glorious picture. But thank you too, Lord, for that glorious truth that we know that one day these pictures will become reality to us. As we read earlier 
we will be standing among those throngs upon thousands upon thousands upon ten thousands who are standing before your throne. And with our very eyes we will see God. Lord, we look forward to that day. But Lord, keep us faithful to Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, not to compromise with the world. Help us, Lord, not to merge into the background, but to stand up as bright lights, shining for Jesus Christ, boldly standing with you giving us that inspiration, with you helping us, with you giving us the words to speak and the courage to stand. Lord, may we shine for Jesus Christ and may we pay the price that you ask us to pay for that. Give us the courage, Lord, we pray. We thank you for this description which brings us encouragement. Lord, may we go into this week with whatever may come our way. May we keep our eyes fixed on the glorious Christ in all your glory. We ask this in your precious name. Amen.